Thank you, ladies. I invite you to turn with me to God's word in Numbers 36, the end of the book of Numbers. I am thankful for this tremendous privilege of sharing God's word with you ladies today. To open any portion of scripture is an immense responsibility, and I do tremble before God as I ask for his guidance through these weighty and very useful chapters. I trust that your souls will be enriched by the teaching today. Numbers 36 verse 13 reads, These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Behind me is a map that shows where the Israelites were when the instructions that we will go through today were given as they prepared to enter into the land of promise. But before we go into these instructions, I would like to share something about my lovely daughter with you. She and I, we go to many places together. And many of these places are filled with temptations because they are designed to entice and excite the little ones to play and to touch with things. It is always convenient how candy is always lining up the cashier's register when you're about to check out. So there is one recurring conversation that I always have with her when we go out. I turn to her behind me in the car seat and we go over some rules of conduct. I say to her, we are going into the store or the mall or whatever location it is. What did mama say? And the response is usually... No touching and no running. We have a running problem. (laughs) I will then say, what else? She will say, obey mama. Alrighty. We are then ready to enter the store or the mall, whatever location it is, with all of its temptations. And I am sure from your laughter that many mothers and grandmothers can relate to these types of conversations and how they turn out. Now, allow me to create the mood of the chapters that we are going to go through today. The children of Israel are ready to enter Canaan and conquer it with all of its temptations. For 40 years, the gate into the promised land has been shut out to all those who left Egypt, and they are now at the very doorstep of Canaan. In fact, they have been in the plains of Moab or the Transjordan since Numbers chapter 22, verse 1. So after many cycles of rebellion, the Lord speaks again to Moses in chapter 26. There is a feeling of change in that chapter. There's a feeling that the narrative is finally about to move forward, and we are finally about to enter into the promised land. We have a sense that we have finally turned a corner from disobedience to renewed obedience. Canaan, as we have been learning, is a land that is filled with blessing. It's a land that's full of milk. It's a land that's full of honey. It is also a land that's filled with many temptations. The inhabitants there are ungodly. They are idol worshipers and they have no fear of God. So God in the plains of Moab, because he is a loving God and he cares for his children, he prepares their hearts in many ways before they set foot into the land. 
in Numbers 26 to 36, which is our text today, we are going to see four ways in which the Lord prepares Israel again to enter into the promised land. Now I invite you to now turn to Numbers 26. If you recall from our last time together, a plague had swept through Israel, killing 24,000 after Israel's gross immorality and idolatry, and the Lord vowed vengeance on Midian. In chapter 26, we read these words. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and to Eliezer, the the son of Aaron, the priest, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward, by their father's houses, all in Israel who are able to go to war. The last census that we saw was in Numbers chapter 1, and that was at Sinai 38 years ago. God's command here is a repetition of a meticulous task of precision in counting the people. And unlike my sister Lynn Brown, who is not a particular fan of numbers, I, as an accountant and an auditor, absolutely love this chapter. It's great. (laughs) Auditors like myself love to compare numbers. We like to analyze variances and come up with explanations for the variances. So as an auditor, I want to know what has changed since the last census and why. This is really exciting stuff for a bean counter like me. (laughs) So by their father's numbers, by their father's houses, see numbers in my head, Moses counts them. Tribe by tribe, like the balance sheet of an accountant, he records everyone and he notes the gains and the losses since the last census. So as we look at this chapter, we see the first of four ways that God prepares Israel again for Canaan. We see the preservation of the covenant in chapters 26 to 27 the preservation of the covenant. As Moses makes a record of the people, we notice that he incorporates narrative additions of faithless men who died in the wilderness. For example, we see Nadab and Abihu are mentioned in verse 61. You will remember them. They offered strange or unauthorized fire and they died. And then if I want you, if, if you could turn to Numbers 26, verse 9 to 10, I would like to draw your attention in particular to where Moses adds a notation to the names of Datham and Abiram. You will remember them. They were leaders in the insurrection against Moses and Aaron in Numbers chapter 16 in the company of Korah. The earth swallowed them up together with Korah and 250 other men were consumed by fire. But notice, though, the note that is in 26 verse 11. It says, but the sons of Korah did not die. We must not miss this verse. The sons of Korah are preserved because they did not join in their father's rebellion. These are the sons of Korah who are later worshippers in the house of David during, in the house of the Lord during the reign of David, and we enjoy many of their psalms. And of particular interest to me is Psalm 46, where the Psalms of Sons of Korah record that God is our refuge and strength, a very help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. 
Their father Korah had indeed seen the earth give way and swallow him up alive, and God and the fire consumed 250 rebellious men, but these sons were preserved because of their faithfulness. This short verse in 2611 is of great significance. The preservation of the sons of Korah shows that even if you come from a dysfunctional family, if you are faithful to God, if you're faithful to God, God will preserve you and you can be a great instrument for his kingdom. Well, when Moses summed up the total numbers in verse 51, there were 601, 730 warriors compared to 603, 550, 38 years ago. The change is just 1,820. When the registers by tribes are compared, seven of the tribes had increased, and Judah, the line of Christ, was the most populous with 76,500. This is significant because it heralds that the messianic hope, the seed, is still alive. And we remember land, seed, blessing. Amen. So we read these sobering words when Moses is done with the count in verse 64 to 65 of Numbers 26. But among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. The words not one in verse 64 and 65 drive home God's judgment for that first generation. Not one entered because they did not have faith in the promises of God. We must not gloss over these verses, but we must ask ourselves some questions. How many of us have struggled with not having faith in the promises of God? When we lack faith in God's promises, this is an affront to God's character. We see that over 603,000 warriors, so an estimated 2.5 million by some commentators, who had triumphantly rejoiced in their deliverance from Egypt, are all now buried in the wilderness. The Lord has preserved his covenant, however, with Abraham because they are now new heirs for the promised land. Think about it. Think about it. Moses is about 120 years old at this time. When he looked around, he would not have seen anybody older than 60 years old except Joshua and Caleb. None of the men who rejoiced with him at the parting of the Red Sea are there with him anymore. We can only imagine that these men and their families had dreamt of a life in the promised land. They dreamt of a life in the land that they would not see because they lacked a singular devotion to God. The requirement from God was clear. Without faith, there was no entrance into the promised land. 
So we read God's perspective of this old generation. If you look at Psalm 95, verse 10 to 11, God says, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. But we do rejoice, don't we, ladies, at the faithfulness of God to a faithless people. Many descendants are preserved, and they will need land to live on. God will give them land equitably based on need. To a large tribe, a large allocation will be given, and this will be overseen by lots, and Joshua will do this. Well, after Moses counts the people, some unique circumstances arise, and petitions are made to the Lord. The land, as we just said, was to be distributed according to father's houses. And in chapter 27, we have the unique case of Selophehad, who is survived by five daughters and no sons. These five virgins come with a petition and they draw near and they stand before Moses. They stand before Eliezer. They stand before the priests, before the chiefs, before all the congregation. This is a big deal in chapter 27, verse 1. And we read of their petition that they make. They say, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. But he died of his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan? Because he had no son. Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. What's going on here? These five daughters heard what Moses said about the land allocation, and they realized that they are going to be destitute and homeless in Canaan. This is a devastating situation for them. But before we proceed, a little background on inheritance laws will prove helpful. During this time, sons primarily got the land inheritance. The daughters, however, got a dowry. A daughter could get clothes. She could get animals, jewelry, money, furniture. In other circumstances, they will get female servants, as in the case of Leah and Rachel, you may remember. And sometimes daughters even got land, as in the case of Caleb's daughter or Job's three daughters, as we see in Job 42, verse 15. Men were, and they still are, the head of household, as God ordained since Genesis 2. So that mandate that man is the head of household flowed through in the inheritance laws. So having that background in mind, let us now observe, let us now observe the petitions of the five wise old virgins, the five virgins of the Old Testament. Yeah, thank you. They are very young. but very wise. They have no representative to speak for them, but they make a petition with reverence and humility to Moses. Their petition is done in pure honesty and courage before all the leaders of the congregation. In their petition, notice that first they confess. They confess that their father died of his own unbelief. Zelophehad's sin was not a sin that was public that caused others to act in an act of insurrection against Moses. 
He died in his own unbelief. They do not deny that. To honor their father's name, they petition for a possession. They want a place to live in Canaan and not be destitute because their father had no sons. These ladies are exemplary. They did not grumble. They did not complain about it. But they make a humble petition to God. And then they waited. Do we wait like these ladies after we make our petition to God? Or do we fret and exhaust ourselves with anxiety? Well, after they make this petition, there is no precedent to this matter. Land ownership matters are new to Israel because Israel has been in slavery for many generations. So this is a unique situation. Now Moses, as we know, is a very wise man. He has been walking with the Lord for many decades, and he doesn't know the answer. So he then asks humbly the Lord of the land for an answer. And God then gives him a favorable precedent and says, these women are right. Don't we love that? The daughters of Zelophehad are right in chapter 27, verse 7. They should get possession of the land. So what we see here is that God is concerned about our needs and his ear is open to our petitions. God hears the needs of these five women and he provides shelter for them. Now bear in mind that during this time, there were possibly many widows and many orphans that were left behind after that old generation died, and God provided for all of them. Deuteronomy 10, 18 says, He defends and he executes the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Well, after God grants the women's request, another petition is made to God in chapter 27. And this is one that Moses himself makes. Moses, as we all now know, will not enter into the promised land. This is a touching and this is a poignant text for us. God tells Moses that he can go up the mountain Abiram and see the land with his own eyes. He can see it, but he cannot lead Israel in its conquest. And this is a reminder to all of us, isn't it, ladies? that no one is immune to the consequences of sin. Moses being the great leader that he is, he sees a need for Israel. He sees that this young generation needs a new leader. So he appeals to the God of the spirits of all flesh in chapter 27, verse 16, the God who endows men with all their gifts, the God who is sovereign over mankind to raise up a man that is capable to shepherd this new generation. Notice that Moses does not propose his own candidate, but he asks God to make that sovereign selection. He wants God to choose a man he can pass the mantle on to, a man that he can hand over the keys to before he dies. It is of no surprise that Joshua is appointed. He was Moses' understudy for 40 years, and he is that courageous warrior that we love who stood by when that bad report came from the spies, him and Caleb. Joshua, whose name means Yahweh, is salvation, is appointed by God as a man in whom is the spirit. He is a God-fearing man. 
So as Israel prepares to enter Canaan, the government of Israel is effectively now being transferred from Moses to Joshua. And Moses' days are drawing to an end. Or having established the inheritors of the land and the new leadership, the Lord then speaks to Moses again in chapters 28 to 30, and he gives him a series of instructions of how to worship in the land. So we now see the second point in our outline, the prescription and the precaution for worship. The prescription and the precaution for worship in chapters 28 to 30. Now, there is a lot of details in this chapters, but if you read chapter 28 and 30, there are some key words that stick out that will help us in our understanding of this text. The words pleasing aroma are mentioned 11 times in the chapters, and the words prescribed quantities are mentioned 16 times in chapter 28. This tells us there is a proper way, a prescribed manner that produces pleasing worship to God. The text reveals that God delights in specific, he delights in systematic, he delights in disciplined and regular worship. Now, in what ways is it prescribed, you may ask? As you read through these chapters, you will notice that it wasn't just any animal. It wasn't just any grain. It wasn't just any wine or any oil that God required. God required exact items in exact quantities at exact times. In chapter 28, verse 2, you will see that there are actual appointed times for these offerings. Daily, weekly, monthly, and annually. In chapter 28, verse 3 to 8, daily, day by day, blood was shed and there was to be offerings at daybreak and at twilight with the lamb without blemish each time. It was a regular offering in verse 3. In 28, verse 9 and 10, weekly for the first time, a Sabbath offering is mentioned and a doubling of the offering from the daily requirement. Two lambs without blemish were required. Blood again was always required and every Sabbath a regular offering was made. In verse 11 to 15 of chapter 28, we see the monthly offerings. Monthly, more animals were sacrificed with grain offerings and drink offerings, as well as a male goat as a sin offering and a lamb without blemish. And in verse 16 to 25, you see that annually there is the Passover, and that's the big event. More offerings, including two bulls, a ram, and seven lambs without blemish. When you move on to chapter 29, emphasis is on three annual festivals, and we won't go into all the detail of those festivals, but G. Wynnum says, every year in the future, the priest will have to sacrifice 113 bulls, 32 rams, 1,086 lambs, and offer more than a ton of flour and 1,000 bottles of oil and wine. Well, what do we do when we read a text like this? First, we observe that God multiplied the people, and these offerings which were to come showed that Israel will be abundantly blessed to be able to bring these offerings at the appointed times. Again, we remember land, seed, blessing. Second, we notice that this was regulated worship. 
There is a discipline. There is a conscientious awareness that is required here. We see that there is a worship that pleases God, and we see that the worship that pleases God is regular and it is disciplined. The word regular itself means continual or ongoing, and it is used 17 times in chapters 28 and 29. That's once in every four verses. And third, ladies, we remember that these sacrifices could only cover but not take away sin. They could not take away sin. That is why when John the Baptist sees Christ, he cries, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Finally, ladies, we observe that worship was a lifestyle for the Israelites, and it is to be a lifestyle for us all. God expects daily worship. We are to regularly increase our worship and our devotion and not decrease it. Each day began with worship. Each day ended with worship. It was a life of devotion to God. Our goal is singular devotion to God just the way it was for the Israelites. Now, when we study a text like this, I, I, have, to, I have to ask you, my friends, how regulated is your worship of God? How disciplined is your time in the word? How are you increasing in your worship of God daily, weekly, monthly, annually? How is your devotion to God who is worthy of all honor, glory, and praise? Is your devotion lacking or non-existent? Oh, may it not be, my friends. There is a manner of worship that pleases God, and he shows it to us here. If you are lacking in this area in your life, your small group leader can help you foster a lifestyle of worship. Well, God has more instruction in chapter 30 as he addresses vows and oaths, and he gives a precaution of vows and oaths in chapter 30. Vows have already been discussed in Leviticus 27 and Numbers 6, and if you remember, vows were voluntary. In Numbers chapter 30, God now places particular emphasis on keeping vows. Now let's think of the context we are in here. These men are about to go to war. And these women are about to see their husbands and their sons go to war. So it is not hard to imagine that some may make some vows or oaths to keep their husbands or their loved ones or themselves safe. So God sets some precautions and says before marriage, the father can overrule the vow of his daughter on the day that he hears it. And in marriage, a husband can overrule the vow of his wife on the day that he hears it. The vow of a man, the vow of a widow, the vow of a divorced woman stands. There is no reprieve. Again, we ask of the text, what is God saying here? Ladies, God is saying You are to be people of your word. You are to be people who are truthful, 
people of integrity. Words matter to God, and God will not be mocked by thoughtless utterances that we do not fulfill. Again, God will not be mocked by our thoughtless utterances. He is holy, and we have to pray that he will help us to be wise with our words. Matthew 5, to 37, Jesus warns us not to make false vows, but for our yes to be yes and our no to be no. Now, in a room this size, I would imagine that there may be some of us who have made some vows or oaths that we have not kept. We are to confess and we are to repent of this sin. You will remember that Peter the Apostle swore an oath in his denial of Christ. In Matthew 26, when a servant girl said to him he was with Jesus of Nazareth, we read that Peter denied it with an oath and said, I do not know the man. And that later he even invoked a curse upon himself in his denial. But realizing his sin, we read in Matthew 26, 75, that he went out and he wept bitterly. You will also remember that Peter later found the grace and forgiveness from the Lord. And he became a great pillar of that early church. So I would encourage you. If you're guilty of this sin, to confess and repent and find the grace of forgiveness that comes from the Lord. So we have seen the preservation of the covenant, the prescription and precaution of worship, and now we see the purging of ungodly influences in chapter 31. You will remember that God instructed Moses to strike the Midianites in vengeance in chapter 25. Moses now does this, and this becomes a dress rehearsal of how Israel is to plunder the Canaanites in the future. There are no casualties on Israel's side, and they kill the five kings and Balaam. But there is a problem when the army returns. Moses meets them, and he is horrified that they have not killed the women and the children. The army had shown mercy, but the Lord demanded vengeance. So we read what Moses says in chapter 31, verse 17. He says, Now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has not known man by lying with him. But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. Now, this is a difficult text for a lot of people. It is probably difficult for some of you in the audience today. As a matter of fact, the world actually wrestles with this text. The deist Thomas Paine considered Moses a detestable villain for this and calls it unexampled atrocities. Richard Dawkins The atheist, in his book, The God Delusion, concludes that Moses was not that great a role model for modern moralists, and he uses this passage as his example. Now, Christian Bale, most of you may be familiar with him, or Hollywood's Batman, who played Moses in the movie Exodus, Gods and Kings, 
drew attention for calling Moses a terrorist and saying, I think the man was likely schizophrenic and was one of the most barbaric individuals that I have ever read about in my life. So I ask once again, what do we do with this text, ladies? First, we must remember, we must remember that the Midianite women were not innocent by any stretch of the imagination. They were a seductive people who lured Israel into gross, idolatrous Baal worship, and 24,000 Israelites died. These women were a moral danger to the Israelites. Bringing these women into the camp was equivalent to living with a poisonous snake in your house. Soon enough, it will strike and kill you. Warren Wiersbe says of this matter, the nation had won the battle but was now in danger of losing the victory, a mistake that God's people have made more than once down through the centuries. Second, these boys were going to grow up and become men of war, and they would want to avenge their father's deaths. And this is how it was in the Near Eastern culture. This appetite for revenge is actually not unheard of in our culture today. Recently, I heard a testimony of a former gang member. His father was killed when he was eight years old. And from that day on, he vowed vengeance to try and find the person that killed his father. Until, praise the Lord, he was miraculously saved. So if you think about it, God was actually showing divine mercy in killing these young boys because they were still under the age of accountability and they would have been ushered into the kingdom of heaven. And third, people who do not like this text or wrestle with it, they wrestle with it because they do not understand the holiness and the righteousness of God. No hint of immorality is to be allowed in God's camp. And we know that from Habakkuk 1.13, that God's eyes do not look upon evil. One commentator says, we often think of many things as dangerous to us as Christians. A hostile government, secular humanism, academic attack, and so forth. But the things that we accept in our midst as Christians that open up the door to immorality and idolatry can do far more real danger than any of those other things. Again, the text is a hard text, but we must remember, ladies, we have to remember that God is good and he is infinitely good. He is also righteous in all of his ways, and his ways are higher than our ways, as we know from Isaiah 55, verse 8. So we must trust that in his infinite wisdom, this was for the good and for his ultimate glory, Romans 8, 28. So God says, purge the impurities in the land, purify everything, do not participate with the ungodly. And we remember, don't we, ladies? We remember Titus 2.11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, 
upright and godly lives. The goal, once again, is singular devotion to God. We renounce ungodliness, ungodly influences, so we are not enticed into ungodliness, and we can live upright and godly lives. Well, we move on to our last point, which is chapter 32 to 36, which deals heavily with land matters. And we finally see the provision and settlement of land matters. The provision and settlement of land matters. Now, in this section, we first must see that land east of the Jordan is described as land that God struck down for the Israelites in Numbers 32 verse 4. So having made that note, we read that Reuben and Gad make a petition to possess this land for themselves because it was good for them and it was good for the multitude of livestock that they had. Moses, fearing another insurrection, strongly condemns the tribes for wanting to do something that will cause disunity and that will discourage the other men. So in Numbers 32 verse 6, we read what Moses says. He says to them, Shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here, while you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. The two tribes respond back, and they say that they will help conquer the land, and they will not return until their brothers had gained their inheritance across the Jordan. And Moses agrees with this solution, and he cautions them with one of the most famous passages in the Pentateuch in 32.23, where he says, But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. It's a good memory verse for all of us. Our sin will always find us out. And then we later read that Joshua, in the book of Joshua, that the tribes kept their word, and were commended for their faithfulness. And it is so good, ladies, to see obedience finally happening in the book of Numbers. So after the matter of Reuben and Gad is settled, Moses recounted the journey that the Israelites took in chapter 33. Now this chapter is one that we should not overlook because in this chapter we're going to see a devoted God, But we're also going to sadly see an undevoted people. First, the devoted God. God was devoted to Israel. He knew every step that Israel took. He remembered all the steps, all the delays, all the canceled trips, so to speak. God was with them by day. He was with them by night. During all their aimless wanderings, he was with them. He numbered and he recorded their steps. In their sinfulness, God suffered long. He suffered long. He was faithful and long-suffering. In their complaining, he provided them with food. Their comments did not tear, and their feet did not even swell up. He was intimately acquainted with all of their ways, and he knew everything that they did when they camped, And when they rose up, he was devoted to Israel. But sadly, we also observe the undevoted people. We observe 
that the Israelites walked a lot. They gathered a lot of mileage, but but they did not go anywhere spiritually, anywhere closer to God. They made no progress towards the land. They were aimless, busy in their disobedience, but not busy about the things of the Lord. The Israelites wasted time, wasted opportunities, wasted blessings, wasted experience, and above all, they ultimately wasted their lives. They did not progress in their relationship with God because they lacked a singular devotion to God. Now, once again, when we see a text like this, we have to pause and ask ourselves some questions. Are your daily activities progressing your relationship with God, or are you just aimless in the church, not growing, not seeking spiritual growth, and not progressing towards maturity in Christ? Do you have a singular devotion to God to mature and to grow in your relationship with him? Are you walking in faith, trusting God for the promises that he has for your life? Well, the Lord, after recounting the journey, then makes provision of land boundaries in chapter 34 to 35. And behind me, You will see a map that the Lord pegged for Israel. Ladies, this is a beautiful piece of land. It has hills, it has valleys, coastland, natural fortifications to protect Israel from her enemies. The Lord also revealed where the Levites will dwell since they had no inheritance of their own. 48 cities were allocated to the Levites. You will see these cities in blue, and then there's the cities of refuge for the manslayer in red. From the census, we learned that there were 23,000 Levites. So there would have been about 500 Levites in each city to benefit all the tribes with the light of the word. The scattering that you see of the Levites is actually a fulfillment of Genesis 49.7, where Jacob on his deathbed says, Levi will be divided and scattered in Israel. And of Exodus 19.6, where God says, there will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The theme of land then fittingly ends the book of Numbers as Israel prepares to go into Canaan. In chapter 36, we read about Gilead and Makam who come before Moses. They are worried that if the daughters of Selophehad marry outside the tribe of Manasseh, the land allotment for Manasseh will be diminished towards the tribe that they will marry into. Even in the year of Jubilee, they will not get the land. The year of Jubilee is a year of rest that was ordained in Leviticus chapter 25, and it happened every 50th year. The goal for the year of Jubilee was that the Israelites would remain free from slavery and debts, and debts were forgiven, and everything was returned back to the original owner, except inherited land. So the sons show incredible wisdom and foresight and faith that they will inherit the land. So this is, again, very refreshing for us to read about the sons believing and coming and seeing what the Lord will provide for them. They actually have faith 
that the Jubilee will happen in 50 years. And think about it, nobody had actually ever celebrated the Jubilee. So in chapter 36, verse 5 to 6, Moses responds according to the word of the Lord. And he says, the tribe of the people of Joseph is right. Let the daughters marry whom they think is best. Only they should marry within the clan of the tribes of their father. I love that. I love that a lot. They should marry whom they wish. God will not mandate a specific person for these ladies, but he says the daughters are to marry within their tribes. So for the single ladies out there, we can carry this over to the New Testament where the Lord says, marry within the church, only do not be unequally yoked. So this book of great disobedience ends beautifully with obedience. We read that the daughters of Zelophehad had obeyed God and they married in the clans of the people of Manasseh, obeying and honoring the Lord. What a triumphant, what a superb ending to the book that was filled with rebellion and disobedience. Now you will remember at the beginning the instructions that I go over with my little one every time we go out. When we go through that grocery store and she stays next to mommy and she does not grab that candy when we pass through the cashier's register, it is a joyous and a blessed experience for everybody. It is. And that is what the Lord desires for his children. And he will continue to instruct them in the book of Deuteronomy of how to live well in the land and to be a blessed people. So how do we look back at the book of Numbers as Israel looks forward to Canaan and Moses gives his last words? Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, the faithfulness of God is the Mount Everest theme of this book despite a faithless people. The book of Numbers has taught us that God preserves his people. An estimated 2.5 million people died in the wilderness, and God fully replenished all of them. Amen. And next to that, we saw the gravity of the sin of grumbling and complaining, and how grave that sin is. We saw that those who started off triumphantly and rejoiced, who saw the signs and the wonders of Egypt, only reached the doorstep of Canaan and were turned away because of their faithlessness. And it may sadly be the same with some of us today. Many sit in the pews every Sunday. Many regularly attend every woman's grace. But they may not enter eternal life because they do not have faith. In God. The book of Numbers shows that we are not just a number, ladies. We are not just a number. God knows all our steps, He knows all our wanderings, He knows all our complaints, He knows names, He knows deeds. He is intimately acquainted with all of our ways, and He knows our hearts. We learned that we are to fully put away, to fully annihilate anything that can ensnare us. 
As John Owens famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. A whole generation was wiped out for faithlessness. They came to the very doorstep of the promised land and the Lord put a no entry sign because they had no faith in his promises. Hebrews 3 verse 7 to 11, therefore as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. We will also only enter into our inheritance With faith and faith alone, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And Hebrews 11.6 says, and without faith, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever will draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of faith. We thank you for these examples we have in the book of Numbers. Having heard your word, may we receive it with thanksgiving and not harden our hearts as we await the inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Amen.